Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. What is my defense narrative in foreclosure? Radio LLB, The Living Lies blog, blog and podcast. Having trouble getting the words out of my mouth. Everyone thinks they know the law, but the evidence is that they don't know how to use the law. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, October 17th, 2019. The defense narrative is a blueprint for guiding the strategies and tactics of, def- of the defense of a foreclosure action. It is not necessarily what you say to the judge or write in a pleading or write in a memorandum. It is your theory of the case. In all court cases, The litigants and their attorneys are required to make certain assumptions of fact and law to arrive at a conclusion that is satisfactory to the client. If you don't have a case narrative, then your presentation is going to be chaotic and it will be unpersuasive because it doesn't make any sense. If you don't have a defense narrative in mind, then you don't have a coherent defense. There are no exceptions to that. I've been involved in, on the plus side, I think, of two uh, trials, final hearings, evidentiary hearings, etc. Anybody who walks into the courtroom without a complete narrative in their mind as to their side of the case loses because they can't make sense to the judge. Are there exceptions to that? Of course. But they're rare exceptions. Without a coherent defense, you won't get any traction with an overworked judge who barely has time to consider the case against you. Due process doesn't mean that the judge is going to hang on your every word. Due process only means that you can speak your words. And if you don't get the judge's attention by gaining credibility with them, right with the judge right at the beginning, then the judge is hardly going to listen to you after that. Think about yourself in your own life. If somebody is talking to you and talking at you and they're not making 
a lot of sense or you're unable to follow them, then your willingness to listen to what comes after diminishes really quickly. If you don't understand your defense narrative, neither will the judge. Now, I include lawyers and the pro se litigants in that because they may get a report from me or Bill Padlow or any number of, of people that explains the facts that go into a defense narrative, but it's up to the lawyer or the pro se litigant to put that together into how they're going to show that the case against them should fail. And they need to, the, the, the lawyer or the litigant needs to understand it and feel strongly about it. If you don't feel strongly about it, the judge isn't going to feel strongly about it. And again, the judge is going to kind of accept the introduction to every foreclosure case because the lawyers in the foreclosure mills are told to start every foreclosure case with these words. Judge, this is a standard foreclosure. You and I, the people who are listening to this show, know that there is no such thing as a standard foreclosure now if it involves, even in the background, any claims of securitization or resales of the loan. The, uh, the facts are not simple. They're convoluted intentionally, and it takes quite a bit of effort and study and pondering to understand what happened in your case which then forms the basis for your defense narrative. That's your theory of the case. This is a program intended to expand your awareness of procedural law, which is the basis for all judgments and orders entered by all courts. The rules of procedure and the laws of evidence, presumptions and inferences are not well understood by most lawyers, much less pro se litigants who have no legal training. I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed trials where the lawyer failed to object and as a result cooked his own client because the evidence that came in was probably false, but it came in and he had nothing to contradict it except his own suspicion that it was untrue. Or sometimes the lawyer, especially pro se litigants, will not raise a timely objection. So they'll wait politely for this whole line of questioning to be completed, and then they'll say they object. It's too late. you got to object on each question. If you don't understand your defense narrative, neither will the judge. Procedure is where the homeowner can win. If you understand your own side of the case, that is the defense narrative. Then you are on the path to victory.
And let me reiterate what I said in a recent article. For those people who aggressively defend with a coherent defense narrative, my observation, no, I haven't done a scientific study, but my observation is they win 65% of the time. The problem is that less than 1% of all the foreclosures are hotly contested. In most cases, the path to victory lies not on some magic bullet, but rather than old-fashioned litigation procedure, rules of evidence, objections, motions, the procedure that favors the party claiming foreclosure. But that can be turned against that same party if you follow the rules of court step by step. Remember, this program is being recorded. You can always come back to this recording or any of our other shows by going to blogtalkradio.com and searching for The Neil Garfield Show. Comments and suggestions are always solicited. Write to Neil F. Garfield at Hotmail.com. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And, of course, this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you, and I thank you. This has been a long mission for me, and without your support, it could not have been done. Thanks to the uptick in donations, we have uh, been developing a schedule for both free and paid seminars. I already had one, and we'll do... Uh, more as the donations roll in. Neither the blog nor the radio shows are supported by anything other than donations. I'm not selling anything here. I'm giving hope to those who need it and those who deserve it. And the message here is simple. Homeowners should win. That's the just result. And until you understand that fully, you're probably not going to win. So hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show is value for you, if I work on the blog and our radio shows uh, without payment or other support is value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. It's not just me who's on this mission. It's you as well. Developing the defense narrative in foreclosure cases where there have been sales or mock sales of the debt, note, and mortgage requires deep knowledge and understanding of the rules and conduct of finance, investment banking, lending, and property law. It also requires a deep knowledge and understanding of the rules of civil procedure and the laws of evidence. Without that knowledge and understanding, your presentation will lack credibility 
because it will be obvious to the judge that you're not sure of what you're trying to assert or how you're trying to defend. It's not the job of the judge to fill in the blank, the blanks. That's your job. Before the era of securitization, the job of a foreclosure defense lawyer was virtually impossible unless the bank had committed an error and failed to credit payments that were made. Today, the situation is entirely different as to both the facts and the law. But both lawyers and judges cling to the hope and belief that the old rules apply. So every defense lawyer knows he has an uphill battle. But if he doesn't believe that his client actually should win, because that would be a just result, then the passion of the advocate is absent. Unfortunately, even homeowners cling to the hope and belief that the old rules apply. The homeowners still think that they owe the money and that the people chasing them for it will turn over the money to someone who has paid value for their debt if the foreclosure goes through. That's not true. For me, the defense narrative is simple. In many cases, the claimant doesn't even exist, or it hasn't been defined. And the claim doesn't exist. In fact, my defense narrative is that the foreclosure doesn't exist. My defense narrative is that the proceeding before the court is an effort to generate revenue with no intent to apply the proceeds of a foreclosure sale to any distribution to anyone who has paid value for the debt or in relation to the debt. Simply stated, that means that the debt is never going to be paid down. And the reason for that is that they're going to maintain the derivative infrastructure indefinitely. My defense narrative is simply that an investment bank is pulling all the strings behind a curtain. When the foreclosure happens, which is often the case, the investment bank takes all the money and distributes bonuses, commissions, and compensation to everyone who assisted in defrauding the court and the borrower. I know that the investment bank does this, and I know how they do it. There are two principal ways in which the investment bank steals the money when a foreclosure has been ordered and the sale has occurred. The first is that because they're in control of everything, they're able to put a label on anything that happens. And that label convinces the court to think of it in terms of whatever is put on the label. So when they take money out of a pool of money advanced by investors and they use it to continue making payments to the investors in accordance with the promise made to investors on the indenture to the certificates, the investment bank is able to label that as a servicer advance, which earmarks the money as payable to the master servicer. Of course, the master servicer is the investment bank. In the, the investment bank has advanced nothing, but they're still able to label money paid to investors as advances from the master servicer, even though the money 
came from the investor's own money. So when the foreclosure occurs, the investment bank makes a claim as master servicer for the servicer advances. The money paid to the investment bank is labeled as a recovery of servicer advances even though they advance nothing. In short, it's revenue. Yes, revenue, not payment of a debt. That's why it's a just result that foreclosure should not be available. The other way that the investment bank takes all the money from the proceeds of a foreclosure sale is by substituting a performing loan for the foreclosed loan. This substitution occurs strictly on paper, but because the investment bank controls everything, including including the labeling of every data entry, the investors do not get any distribution of any proceeds from any sale of any foreclosed property. The investment bank takes it all. In both cases, the investment bank has never put up a single penny for the funding of the loan, but it has controlled the labeling such that it appears as though the investment bank has actually funded the loan. In reality, the investment bank has solicited payments from investors in exchange for certificates in which the investment bank makes a promise to pay a stream of income or cash flow to the investors under the name of a trust, which may or may not actually exist. The trust could be merely a fictitious name of the investment bank. The investment bank doesn't show up anywhere in what is presented to the court. It's not in the chain of title. It's not shown as a servicer, even though they've taken the position of master servicer. It's not shown at all. While the investors have put up 100% of the money for the origination and acquisition of the loans, they receive no title and no rights and no interest in the debt of any borrower nor in any instrument executed by the borrowers, such as the promissory note or mortgage or deed of trust. So they put up the money, but they get nothing but an unsecured promise in return from an investment bank who's then going to go out and play with their money. So there you have it. That's my defense narrative. That's my blueprint for the strategies and tactics I will employ to obtain a successful result in foreclosure defense, which I have done repeatedly. But my defense narrative is narrated by myself to myself and never repeated to the court. Convincing the court that everything I just said was true would take weeks of trial. But knowing my defense narrative and understanding the facts and knowing that I've got corroboration of those facts guides me on my motion to dismiss, a petition for a temporary restraining order, complaints, interrogatories, requests for production of documents, requests for admissions. By the way, those are important because uh, uh, 
in addition to the obvious about they, they might admit something that will be helpful, is that once they deny it, any effort it takes by an attorney to prove that which they uh, have denied results in an award of attorney's fees in the discretion of the court. So whether it's subpoenas, objections at trial, cross-examination of witnesses, everything I do in court is guided completely by my defense narrative. You may have already heard the old saying that a good litigator never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. And that's true, and that's especially true in foreclosure defense. But you're not going to be able to do that if you don't have a defense narrative. I know that the robo-witness on the stand will never be able to answer certain types of questions. I know he will not be able to answer my questions about the books and records of the alleged trust because he doesn't even know if they exist. I know that the robo-witness from the service or presumed servicer, that that witness will not be able to answer my question about any transaction where money changed hands in exchange for ownership of the debt note or mortgage. Remember that under Article 9, Section 203 of the Uniform Commercial Code as adopted in all 50 states, a condition precedent to being able to foreclose is that the claimant has paid value for the debt. Now, if they paid value for the note or paid value for the mortgage, there's a presumption that goes with it that that was for the debt. I know, but the, but in reality, in securitization, the money went to the investment bank and stayed there. So the, all the other parties could not have exchanged money because none of them had advanced any money. So they wouldn't demand any money in exchange for a fictitious ownership in the debt note or mortgage. I know that all the documents are fabricated, forged, and backdated. So I can ask questions in discovery and cross-examine it. Uh, that highlights the fact that neither the alleged servicer nor the party answering the interrogatories uh, or other discovery requests nor the robo-witness in the trial has any personal knowledge or information that answers a simple question. Is this foreclosure brought by a party who owns the debt by reason of having paid value for the debt? I will raise the inference that the, que the answer to that question is no. Does that prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the answer is no? No. But it undermines the presumption that the answer is yes. And that's all you need. Because once you undermine that presumption, now they have the burden of proving that the answer is yes and showing proof of payment. But I also know that although technically I've defeated the action for foreclosure, the judge in many cases will be resistant uh, unless I can convince the judge at a minimum that there is a complete absence of any evidence 
that any of the parties who are mentioned in the name of the claimant, remember that there are many names in, uh, where there's a so-called trust involved, that any of the parties who are mentioned in the name of the claimant are the owners of the debt by reason of having paid for it, and that none of those parties are representing the interest of anyone who has paid value for the debt. Their goal is revenue. How do I show that? I ask them. I ask them in discovery. I ask them um, in cross-examination. Who's the owner of the debt? Who has paid value for this debt? Who do you represent? They can't answer that question. In most cases, because they don't even know. Even the most cynical judges can be brought around to the view that at least in this one case, don't make it about all foreclosures. Judges hate that. At least in this one case, the evidence is insufficient to allow the foreclosure to proceed. The mistake made by most lawyers and most homeowners is that they think they have to prove the whole thing is a, a Ponzi scheme. They don't. And if they try, they're going to look like idiots because in order to prove that, you're going to need three weeks of trial time. You only need to prove all that if you're – and actually, you don't even need to prove all of that. If you're suing them for damages, injunctive, or declaratory relief, all you need to do is undermine the presumptions that are used – by the opposition such that the opposition is left in a position where they actually have to prove the facts without relying on presumptions. Once you raise the inference that presumed facts and law may not be true, you are then in a position to argue that the presumptions should not be applied and that there is no prejudice to the opposition in requiring them to prove the facts that they want the court simply to presume. Once I succeed in convincing a judge that this is the case, that they shouldn't be entitled to the presumption, and they should be required to prove it, my client wins every time once I get to that point not saying you get to that point every time because it's all a matter of presentation and, of course, judicial bias, which is something we all know about. Homeowners win under those circumstances because of one simple fact. The opposition doesn't have the goods. The opposition doesn't own the debt. The opposition never paid for the debt. The opposition isn't seeking to recover on a debt because they have no intention of turning any money over to anyone who actually owns the debt because they paid for it. Now, that's how I approach it. And other lawyers, to their credit, have won cases, many cases, 
out in California. You, you've heard from them, uh, Charles Marshall, Steve Lopez, etc., um, and in Florida, uh, Patrick Junta uh, and I. Uh, other lawyers have won their cases by concentrating on the technical deficiencies, but they don't win just because of the technical deficiencies. They win because the judge, usually it's a senior judge, suddenly sees the deficiency in proof. And the way homeowners win is by highlighting the insufficiency of the proof to establish a prima facie case. Thank you. Good night. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.